I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Thomas O'Neill White. I'm Angelie Preston. We need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is What's Next. A dedicated hour to have important conversations about the issues facing the marginalized and underrepresented communities of Western New York and Southern Ontario. We're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truth. What's Next continues our mission to discuss race, equity, and the common concerns of Buffalo's East Side and beyond. In the suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. Welcome to What's Next. Today, we're going to be talking about The Bridge Project. The Bridge Project, their co-founder and president is Holly Fogel, who joins us via Zoom uh, today. Holly, thanks for being with us. Jay, thanks for having me. So The Bridge Project started in New York City in 2021, providing low-income mothers with $1,000 per month for three years. This is a fascinating development that somebody has gone out to try to do this because we do hear some different conversation about uh, guaranteed incomes for people as a way to fight poverty. Uh, just talk about the, the background when it comes to the Bridge Project. From where did it start? Sure, happy to. And I think it's useful to start with a figure, which is $14,700 a month. Imagine trying to live in New York State or city with a baby with $14,700 a year. Hmm. That is the average household income of our mothers in the Bridge Project. Fundamentally, I want to eliminate childhood poverty in this country, and the Bridge Project seeks to do that through providing expecting mothers with up to $1,000 a month with unrestricted cash for three years, starting during their third trimester in pregnancy. And that's the entire idea. It's that simple. Give mothers cash and trust them to do what they need to do for their baby. Fast Company recognized us in 2022 as a world-changing idea and called our actions radical and groundbreaking. I just find it almost laughable that giving mothers and trusting mothers cash is radical and groundbreaking. I'm a baby person first, not a cash person. And as you said, there is a lot of guaranteed income pilots popping up around the country. And so I wasn't coming at this from a guaranteed income angle, okay. but in researching a variety of different ways to help babies we found unrestricted cash was the most effective and it offered the flexibility that is so important with a newborn. One week as a mother, you might need to cover a doctor's copay. Another, you might need to buy diapers. The Bridge Project has been on a journey. We were built out of our family's foundation called the Monarch Foundation. And there are three really deeply held beliefs that have informed our approach to early childhood poverty. The first one is that we need to prevent versus undo. So that means babies, not after school programs. I believe that really, really strongly. The first thousand days really matter. And the academic research just keeps piling up on this front. And as a country, we keep ignoring it. We know that these early days lead to lifelong effects, up to 20 IQ point differentials, 20 years of additional life. These are incredible statistics. The list goes on and on. The second belief that we have very strongly is that the return on investment matters. My husband and I are both Wharton finance majors. I'm a former McKinsey partner. My husband's a venture capitalist. We have $40 million of our own money invested in this program across New York State. And we are so excited to bring the Bridge Project to Buffalo. But fundamentally, cash is the most efficient, effective tool we have as philanthropists and as policymakers. As an example, food stamps 
our best government program out there are valued at 80 cents on the dollar by the recipient and 65 cents in the underground market. So if that mom needs to sell those food stamps to buy diapers, she's going to get 65 cents. Hmm. I hate bureaucracy. And thanks to Columbia and their work around the expanded child tax credit, we have proof of a 10-time return on investment. That was a nationwide pilot that had unbelievable returns. You and I would take a 10-time return on investment in a stock market all day long. Right. And yet we don't do this for our babies. And the, the last bit I would just say, our last belief is in the dignity of people. I come from a proud line of coal miners and teachers. I grew up on a farm in Appalachia, population 300 people. And I witnessed poverty firsthand every day. I watched it obliterate hope. I watched it devastate families. But I also witnessed the resiliency and determination of mothers. I really believe we rise to our better angels when people believe in us. So I see people, not problems. I certainly believe in another mother's love. There is nothing fiercer. And my dollar is on the mama every time. There is no one who knows better how to make these minute-by-minute minute resource allocation decisions than a mother with a hungry baby. The Bridge Project started in New York City, went to Rochester. Now it's in Buffalo. It's in its infancy. I guess there's a bit of a pun there when we're talking about um, uh, expecting mothers. So where is it right now in Buffalo? Where, what stage are we at in terms of applications and, and who is going to benefit from this? You know, we did start in New York City and we have our first 1,000 moms there. But as you all know and your listeners know, unfortunately, poverty is not confined to New York City. And Buffalo has the second highest rate of child poverty in the nation at 44%. I mean, sit with that for a minute, right? Mm. The second highest rate of child poverty in the nation. Like, how are we okay with this? I was on a panel late last year with Paul Krugman, the Nobel Prize winning economist, and he said that when he travels in Europe, Fellow economists ask him, why do Americans hate babies so much? Mm. That question was just a gut punch for me. So to your question of where are we at in Buffalo, we opened the applications on December 15th, and we had over 200 applications for the 50 slots within 72 hours. That was overwhelming and an immediate response that frankly, we did not expect. We haven't seen that level of uptake in our applications when we have done this in New York City and Rochester. So it speaks to me to the enormous need that exists in Buffalo for our babies. And you know, frankly, it is simply heartbreaking that we don't have more money to have more spots in Buffalo. People are really hurting. So at this point, unfortunately, the applications are closed, but if we're able to find other private philanthropists that want to invest in the babies of Buffalo and in Buffalo's future, we can open those applications up again, which is our hope. As an aside of sorts, we've talked about the incredible need here in Buffalo when it comes to this. And like you said, the quick turnaround when it came to the applications, is there a sense in any regard that somehow the communication was better here in Buffalo, that this pipeline was reaching out to, to the right people? Yeah, I think we absolutely have to draw that conclusion among others. And I think, you know, huge credit to your community partners that were really fantastic. And I will say the elected officials have been simply awesome. Mayor Byron Brown, State Senator Tim Kennedy, and the Majority Leader Crystal People-Stokes have been real champions and really, really helpful in their offices helping us to get the word out, which, you know, I think was is a testament to them and how much they care about their communities and you know, obviously we ended up seeing this and that really, really quick uptake among the mothers of Buffalo. 
What have we seen so far in New York City? You said a thousand mothers already have uh, come through the Bridge Project? That's right. So we started our first cohort was 100 mothers, and they are approaching their two and a half year mark right now. Um, And then we've added another 900 mothers in New York City and another 100 mothers in Rochester over the last two years. And so, you know, we're seeing a lot of different reactions. I mean, many that you would expect and many, many great ones, you know, things like one mom, Justine, who works security. And before the program, she told us that she was working six nights a week to make ends meet. Thanks to the breathing room, she now is working five nights a week, which is still an awful lot but she really is trying to spend extra time with her baby. Another mom told us that you know, her baby's recognizing shapes and colors faster, which she really thinks is because she's able to be around and she has some extra financial security. I mean, of course, people are buying things like safe strollers and a crib that a baby can sleep in to reduce SIDS. But you know, I think the thing that makes my heart really warm is that the moms are telling us they're showing up in different, more present ways with their children, you know, or, or frankly, being able to take two weeks off of work for jobs that don't have paid family leave. And I think one mom really captured it for me. She said, it just gives me the room to breathe. So, you know, sometime it just buys some breathing room um, where people can take a breath and think about a shot at a different future that they didn't see as possible given their previous circumstances. I can recall when uh, we were expecting and that, that sense of pressure, I and mean, we most certainly weren't uh, in the situation that these folks are for sure. But at the same time, like you said, it, you know, every dollar is accounted for. And, you know, what are you going to utilize your dollars for? Uh, it's interesting to hear what you talk about in terms of some of the things that these mothers have an opportunity now to have for them and for their children as well. Uh, I would also just think there just has to be just a, a sense of relief. Like I talked about, I, I can most certainly understand the pressure that people are under when it comes to uh, having children. Is that something else you ha- they had? And, and what do you see as being the benefit of maybe having that sense of relief? It's not a ton of relief because money money goes fast, doesn't it? Yeah. No, you're absolutely right, Jay. And I, I think, you know, it's part of why I believe in this program so much is a mother who had resources for my children. It was still really hard. It's hard to be a parent, as mm. you said. And I think, you know, diapers cost almost $1,000 a year. And people are surprised to hear there's no government program that gives you any money against diapers. And so, you know, that leads people to do all kinds of things to actually have cash, to be able to have the dignity to put their child in diapers. I think, you know, fundamentally, this idea of giving people a bit of optimism around the future and a bit of breathing room, you know, as an example, 70 plus percent of our moms, when they first enroll, have less than $100 in savings. So these people, as as you say, are living really close to the edge. Um, And, you know, having a baby is an enormous expense in life, but it shouldn't be something that only the middle class can afford. I mean, we need to be recognizing how hard this job is of being a parent and how expensive it is. And that also as a country, we have huge economic consequences when we don't support these littlest people to reach their fullest potential. Let's talk about where you see the success that you have and will continue to have, but do you have that goal, that idea that once these things happen, we can get to the spot? Yeah. Well, you know, ultimately this needs to be a government funded program because we'll never be able to reach every baby, but 
with private philanthropy. But in the meantime, I do believe very strongly, and I think we're showing this as possible in New York State broadly, that private philanthropy can show a path forward here for government. And we can then push the policymakers to catch up with all the data we can lay down. Um, there is some good news though. There is current legislation proposed in the New York State Legislature from Senator Jessica Ramos and Assemblymember Sarah Clark to offer cash benefits to 15,000 new moms across the state for 21 months starting during their pregnancy. I mean, that would be simply incredible. We are really excited about this bill and working very closely with both of their offices to help wherever we can. And we should all urge our elected state officials to embrace it for the babies across the state. In my home city of New York City, last year, New York City Council Speaker Adrian Adams had proposed $5 million in budget allocations towards programs like Bridge last year, which was pretty radical as well at the time. Um, they had never done something like that before. It did not ultimately make it into the final budget, but I th we also th saw that as an enormous win in the sense that we had a lot of elected officials talking about trusting women and mothers specifically with cash for their babies and letting government step back and let people do what they need to do. So, you know, good signs, good progress. Obviously, the child tax credit debate at the federal level continues, and we are fully, fully in support of that. I should also say we're doing a lot of research ourselves in-house because uh, the program's getting so large um, that will help fuel some of these discussions and have, you know, more data around all of these different aspects. Um, I will say we hear questions like, you know, do the mothers spend the dollars on drugs and alcohol? Hmm. Uh, that answer is no. Hmm. Um, do they quit working? Uh, that answer is also no. Hmm. Um, and then, you know, we also get this question a lot. Well, don't they need financial literacy classes because they're very poor? And I think, you know, on that one, there's a story that we heard in the earliest days that I think really back this up. But um, and I'll tell you, which is a mother who, when we ask her how many dollars um, she had in her savings account, she said zero, hmm. but she had $20 under her mattress. And the reason that money was so important to her is she had an older child who had asthma. And she said that the ambulances run really slowly in her part of New York City. And she was worried that in the middle of the night, that child would have an asthma attack and she would not be able to get him to the hospital fast enough to save his life. So the $20 was the taxi cab fare one way. So I think when a mother's making that kind of trade-off every day, I'm going to trust her to make a really good one around protein for dinner or the amount of money she needs to get her child to the hospital in the middle of the night. So, you know, I think that's the power of the Bridge Project is that we can put down a lot of data and work with really smart people to do that. And we are close to the mothers and we can hear those kinds of stories and try to bring those narratives forward as well. So we remember how many of our fellow Americans and fellow New York state folks and neighbors are really hurting. We are talking today with Holly Fogel. She's on with us courtesy of Zoom here on What's Next. She is the founder or co-founder and president of the Bridge Project uh, uh, here in Buffalo. It's just getting underway as a matter of fact. And uh, what we're seeing is expecting mothers uh, being provided cash on a monthly basis for three years. Right, Holly? That's right. And you you brought up the, the, the questions. You got into the questions. So you kind of usurped my uh, next question. But, you know, you've obviously, because of your success on, in, the, in the professional world, 
I'm sure you travel in, in circles where you have no people with strong opinions who are also trying to influence public policy and perhaps in an opposite way uh, that you are not opposite, but maybe uh, maybe have a different path. I, well, we'll look at it that way. And, you know, we've had conversations on this program about you know the victimization of poor people when it comes to those conversations. How do you respond to, like you said, those questions about do these mothers go and then spend money on this? Do they quit their jobs then? How do you respond in those circles when it comes to perhaps, like you said, former peers of yours in in the professional world that maybe you've uh, encountered? Yeah, it's a great question, Jay. And I do hear it all the time. And I I think there's a few things. And I think that's actually been a journey and a response for me. In the beginning, I love data. And in the beginning, I used to cite all the studies from, you know, Columbia and from James Heckman and all of these different things. Um, Give Directly has done this work of direct cash around the world for many years ahead of us, not just to mothers, but to people living in poverty and, and many different circumstances. And we ourselves are actually working with the University of Pennsylvania Center for Guaranteed Income Research to really study how the mothers are using this money. We can track that on their cards. So I used to go into that, the, all of those facts and figures that all disprove these myths that we have as you say, really harmful stereotypes about people living in poverty and spending this money on vices or not working or the financial literacy. But I think as I have been on this journey now for about three years, in many ways, I will just say there is reams of data. We should all look at it. I'm happy to talk to anybody about it. But I have started to just literally say, do they spend money on drugs and alcohol? No. Right? Do they quit working? No. Like We can't quit working, right? As a mother, if you have $14,000 a year in household income, you're not not working. You need to work to support your family. The father needs to work to support the family. And I mean, I think this is, you know, in many ways, common sense if we really think about it. But to your point, we do have these myths in our head that people are in these situations because they've made really bad choices. I mean, the reality is they have very few choices in these situations. And I think I really understand that given how I grew up myself. And I I sort of see the desolation in my part of the world in Appalachia and, and what has happened because of very few choices out there. But, you know, there is a lot of good data. Your listeners could certainly write to me, and I am delighted to talk about all the data. But I do think we need to be telling more stories like I told about the mother with the $20 because it it also humanizes it to us and makes us step back a little bit and maybe be curious right, around um, our neighbors and maybe curious about some of this data that could find a little opening in our head and in our heart. I say that I have a a McKinsey-trained head and an Appalachia-trained heart. And I think that's a good combination for this work. Um, And it's a good combination in conversations because um, I'm happy to talk about both. Uh, I'm going to ask you this question then, because uh, I don't think I've really ever had a chance to talk with uh, somebody like you, Holly Fogel, somebody who has put up such an ambitious project that is tackling our, our society's biggest problem there. I, you know, I don't have to even go and say anything more about that. You're looking at the data, you're hoping to to see this grab on and and become something that is a a public venture. But what about a, a bigger picture? What can you see for this world from the bridge project and similar efforts? What can, what, can you give me a vision of society as you see it, where it is and where it could be? Yeah. You know, I think 
where it is, is I think back to Paul Krugman's question of fundamentally, why do we act like we hate babies so much? Mm. Uh, we, we say we love babies, but what we do with our actions is quite different. But I think, you know, fundamentally, I am an eternal optimist and a realist in a lot of ways. But the good news is here, we showed as a country that we had the willpower during 2021 with the child tax credit to prioritize and lift up our youngest members of society. And, you know, frankly, that's not just a moral platitude. That's actually just good economic sense. If we come back to all of these other measures, this is our future workforce. These are our future doctors and lawyers and social workers and teachers and all of those things. And so, you know, I think fundamentally right now, by the end of 2024, we will hopefully have over 2,000 families enrolled in the Bridge Project. We are simply limited by funding at this point. Um, and I think as the word gets out and just this common sense notion of trusting people, whether folks are a Democrat or a Republican, it just makes a lot of good sense because it limits government in an important way and it prioritizes the dignity of people. And so, you know, that's the world that I want to live in, a world that prioritizes the dignity of people that trust people, but that looks at all this data and actually says, yeah, we're not doing this because we think it's Pollyannish. We're doing it because it makes really, really good sense for us as a city, state, and country. And we can get there. I really, really believe that, or I wouldn't be doing this work. How much interaction have you had with some of these mothers who have been involved in the Bridge Project? We had a, um, a Christmas party or holiday party here in New York City right before the holidays. And I have to say, we spent the day basically holding babies because you could probably uh, relate to this as a parent. Sometimes it's just so nice to be yes, able to enjoy a cup of coffee or a cup of tea without worrying about scalding your little person. So uh, we spent the day holding babies and just watching the joy of the mothers um, as they were able to talk and the fathers and able to converse with each other and find some shared ground of of all of us, right, of just being parents and how hard this is and how a little extra cash goes a long way in terms of giving some of that breathing space and also giving some space for some dreams to to start to be born again or start to be revived. So I have to say it was a really joyous day just a few weeks ago. We had a lot of crying um, <laughs> and a lot of laughing, but it was a really, really wonderful moment just to remind us all, I think, of our common humanity and how much we truly share versus how different sometimes we all you know, the media can all paint us as being. And fundamentally, it was just, it was, a, it was a wonderful day of people being parents and remembering that it's a hard journey and we're better when we do it together. What's next for the Bridge Project and also for the Monarch Foundation? Where do you go from here? You've got New York City, you've got Rochester, you've got Buffalo. What's next? Well, next is a couple of other states and possibly Appalachia, where I came from, which is um, a different beast altogether. But I think what's great is we have some private philanthropy dollars to go forward in some other very important ways outside of the Monarch Foundation's investment in bridge projects. So what's I think so exciting is that other folks are coming along and believing in this power of simplicity and effectiveness. But we have to keep pushing at the city, state and federal level as well. And so I think it really is a, a sort of a two-part strategy of doing as much as we can do with our own money and um, helping other private philanthropists put their money to work very directly into the hands of mothers and babies and um, continuing to push and lift up these narratives and amplify the voices of these mothers and these babies for city, state, and federal officials so we can you know, ultimately 
get things like the milk bill that's on the floor of, of Albany passed, that we can get our governor to be paying attention to babies, and we can get our president and our federal folks to also be recognizing that this is just smart policy. And I think we have a lot of good company along the way. So we really appreciate people like you helping us to to get the story out and get people excited and thinking and maybe curious about this a little bit and and remembering that many of us have been in these same shoes at one point in our life or another. We're coming down to our, our final moments here uh, with you, Holly Fogel. But I couldn't help but thinking as you were talking earlier, we kind of I gave you an opportunity to give us the, the the bright, ambitious picture of things. I'm wondering though, for somebody who obviously you're very analy- analytical, you know numbers, you look at the, the federal budget, you look at the state budget, can you, I mean, do you have any general thoughts? You know, we can say about spending money and this, that, and the other thing, but any general thoughts about how those investments that are obviously needed when it comes to fighting poverty can be utilized and yet still keep the economy? I mean, that's always going to be the, the, the big pushback, right? You're going to crush the economy if you do this, right? I mean, I see you smiling on the other end of the, our Zoom connection with that. What about that? I mean, do you ever, is that something that- That's where sometimes when people talk about a guaranteed income, which would apply to every, uh, or a basic income, right? Those mean slightly different things, but those those are very, very broad programs that apply um, in many cases to huge swaths of people across our country. Um, you know, and ultimately some of those programs have a lot of merit in them and there's other pilots studying those programs. But, you know, fundamentally it is where we have a very specific and narrow focus on babies and that first thousand days of life starting in that third trimester of pregnancy. So it does bring the cost down. I'm not going to tell you it's super cheap, but I will tell you it's pretty cheap relative to the alternative back to my undo versus Mm. prevent. If we think about the wasted IQ points that we have of folks who just didn't get the right nourishment, didn't have stable housing, didn't have food, didn't have a household where there was harmony within it, which is a, a clinical term in those earliest days of life. It is incredibly costly for us as a country. And so I do think we can be very short-sighted as a country and think, well, we don't want to put that money forward today. But yet it costs us so much money down the road for all of us as citizens. And I'm fond of saying in general, in my work, um, that budgets are moral documents. And I really think we have to think hard as Americans and as New Yorkers around what our budget is saying about us and and what that means for us as a, a state and as a country. But I really believe that we can make some big changes here that are really positive. And I think fundamentally, that's the world that I want to live in, a world that values babies, a world that values our neighbors, a world that recognizes that sort of there too could I be, but for the grace of God. And I have been really fortunate in my life with my financial wherewithal. And I think I I was raised by a bunch of Methodist folks who always reminded me to turn back around and recognize that there's somebody else that could use a helping hand like I did, um, that I needed myself years ago. And so I think if we can remember that as people, just very fundamentally, um, that's the world that I want to live in. And I think these little babies that don't have voices and don't have votes are a pretty darn good place to start. Well, Holly Fogel, uh, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for bringing the Bridge Project to Buffalo. Um, like you said earlier, most certainly is a major need here in Buffalo. And again, thanks for being with us on What's Next. My pleasure, Jay. Thanks for having me. Stay with us. There's more to come. This is What's Next on WBFO. You're listening to What's Next 
our place to discuss the important issues of our communities of Western New York and Southern Ontario. We want to hear from you. Click on the Talk to Us option in the WBFO app, and we will work to get your questions or comments on the air. Do you have a story or concern that we should be addressing? Email us using what's next at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. This is What's Next. I'm host Thomas O'Neill White, and joining me today to talk about youth engagement, anti-violence measures, and basketball is Most Valuable Parents Executive Director Mia Ayers-Goss. Mia, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, and thank you for pronouncing my name right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's talk about one of my favorite things. Okay. Basketball. Uh, Talk to us about the Neil Dobbins Inner City Basketball League. Uh, who had a championship game earlier this month. Absolutely, and thanks so much for asking. And now basketball is one of my favorite things. It did not used to be, (laughs) but now it is. So, yes, we just had the uh, championship game, um, and the two teams, back to basics, who was undefeated. They did not lose a game throughout the whole entire time. And uh, ECRJC, which is Erie County Restorative Justice Coalition, those were the two teams. So just back up a little bit. Um, we had 12 teams. So we mm-hmm. had 12 sponsors. Um, sponsors like Say Yes Buffalo, the Urban League, uh, Trade Fair, Food Market. Um, so different uh, people slash organization businesses sponsored a team. And those 12 teams competed against one another to get to the semifinals and then to the championship. But in order for the young men to play in the game, they had to um, attend restorative circles or uh, life skills workshops or like um, focus groups, uh, deep conversations. They had to do something else other than just the basketball. The purpose was for us to build relationships with them and to give them uh, soft skills and tools, things that they could use to stop them from wanting to commit crimes, to help them thrive in school, maybe get back in school, things like that. So take me through like a day, like do they do they do these, like say they have a game, would they do like a circle okay. before or after? Or was that throughout the week? Well, it's throughout the league. Okay, the league. this was our first time. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'll you know I'm totally transparent and honest. This was our very first time doing this. Uh, our intention was to have them do it every week. However, um, we had some difficulties with keeping coaches because. You know, just being honest is very difficult to find people to volunteer. That's one of the struggles uh, that community organizations have is to have volunteers. So um, things we had uh, difficulty with space, you know, practice space for the youth. So when you have 12 teams and they all need to practice, Mm -hmm. they all have to have coaches there with them. Um, We had to have facilitators for everyone, which we had everything on paper. We had everything in the beginning. But then, unfortunately, sometimes people started to fall off. So they all had to attend at least once before the league was over. So they had to come to a focus group in a restorative circle and before the league was over. So we did not we weren't able to do it every week, bottom line, but they all had to engage. What do you think uh, taking a, a look at the league overall? and the kids who participated, what do you think they they got from the league? Mm, so much. Um, 
and I, 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 I get emotional just thinking about it. Um, these are youth that uh, do not always have the support uh, that they need. And it's not always the fault of the parent. It's not because, oh, they have all these bad parents. Mm-hmm. Um, you could have, you know, a mother and father that both have two jobs or a mother that's going to school and working. And then the father has a job that's traveling. But then sometimes you do have parents that are, you know, on drugs or sometimes you have parents that are just not around. There are multiple different situations, but a lot of these youth just did not have the support so and guidance. Um, so having positive role models and having uh, mentors that just told them, I'm here for you. I care about you. What do you need? And listening to them, uh, it helped them to thrive. Uh, we had lots of in- instances where these kids were on probation. Some of them had dropped out of school and had not been in school for more than a year. And now at, by the end of the league, they were getting their GED. They had jobs. You know, they were coming to us saying, you know, Miss Mia, can you help me find a welding program or can you help me get back in school? Um, so they went from slouching when we were talking to them and cursing every time they had to say something and not really having any goals to wanting to do something positive with their life. So let's talk a little bit about Most Valuable Parents. Uh, For those who don't know, what type of organization is this? So uh, it's called Most Valuable Parents because our primary focus is parents is is it started uh, the reason it started was to help parents to be more accountable, to help parents with support and resources so that they could be better parents and help the children uh, to have better lives. Um, however, we do now work with uh, youth and um, we work with other organizations. We do a lot of collaboration. So I would say we are a uh, violence prevention group. Uh, we are a community service group uh, with a primary focus of uh, the parents, but we feel that getting to the root cause of the issues with families will help to reduce violence. Is this what drew you to the organization? Uh, Absolutely. Um, So I have five children of my own, and I've always wanted to work with the community, but um, I was under the impression that I did not have enough time uh, to to be a community service person. Um, I know now better, but uh, my idea was once my last child, my youngest child, went off to college, that I would want to do some community service. Two weeks after my daughter went to college, I saw um, a Facebook post uh, that Neil had put out, and I had worked with his wife in the past. So I said, okay, well, let me try this. And the rest is history. And you worked closely with with Neil, Neil Dobbins, um, who created Most Valuable Parents. Um, But who was the late Neil Dobbins uh, for folks who may not know of him? So Brother Neil Dobbins uh, had worked. He worked with community work. He did community work for over 25 years. Um, He started off because his son, uh, Neil Jr., unfortunately, was murdered. Uh, His sister was murdered. 
Um, so he always had uh, an interest in helping youth and, and helping the community. He was one of the founding members of Stop the Violence, uh, that community organization. Um, so he did a lot of work individually with youth, and he had uh, taken groups of youngsters fishing, taking them to play basketball. So he did a lot of work with them. But one day, him and his wife was watching uh, the news, and there was a story about a woman, Yvette, and her grandchild that got murdered. And when he saw that, it just kind of struck a chord in him. And he was like, you know what? We need to get to the parents. We need to get the parents and make them more accountable, help them to be more accountable. So he said, I'm going to put a Facebook post out and I'm going to call a meeting and I'm going to see if we can get 1,000 parents together. And, you know, if we can just get them to, you know, to work together and uh, we can provide resources and support and, you know, give them what they need so that they can be more accountable to help their families. So he put the post out and it was standing room only the meeting. I mean, it was packed. People came from all over. So he did it the next week. He said, okay, I'll do it one more time. And it was (laughs) packed again. So he said, you know what? I guess I'm in it for the long haul. So he got a logo and then they got t-shirts and they started to go door to door and MVP was born. And so you worked under him then? Yes. Um, I did not go to the very first meeting, but I was there at the second meeting. Um, I started a, a week or two into MVP. So I was his deputy director. I started with him, like I said, about a week or two after he started MVP. And um, I'm just the kind of person that when I start something, I really get involved. So I just started just doing things that I know needed to be done. And he he was like, you know what? You're my deputy director. <laughs> so three months into MVP, he was like, you're going to be my deputy director. So I was his deputy director up until his unfortunate passing. What kind of legacy has he left uh, for for you and for the organization? Well, he's I can't say enough about his strength, about the impact that he had on not only the MVP members, but on our community. If you speak to anyone that knew him, elected officials, uh, church members, Muslim member, people of the Islamic faith, um, you know, in the school district, you know, he was everywhere. So he left a legacy of creating synergy and solidarity in our community. And he left a legacy of us making sure that we continue to work with the family and build the family unit so that we can reduce violence. And not only did he have a passion for working with youth, but he also was really uh, passionate about uh, changing legislation and laws and fighting the uh, gun traffickers and, you know, the weak gun laws that some other states have. So he had a lot of passions, but I would say that's his legacy. You mentioned synergy and, and solidarity and, and collaboration as well. What do, what do those words mean to you? Uh, well, it, it means unity, basically. And mm-hmm. the bottom line is we can do more together than we can do alone. So it's very important for MVP to bring folks together to make this happen because violence is a, we always say it's like a multifaceted thing. It's a multi-headed beast Mm -hmm. and it's going to take many different things in order for us to reduce the violence. So we can't do it alone. Um, You can't just have a group that 
uh, deals with mental illness. You can't just have the police. You can't just have the school system. You can't just have the doctors and the lawyers. Like all of us together is what's going to change this. Do you see that working uh, more so that type of synergy than it than maybe five years ago, ten years ago. Well, I, I definitely can say that in the last five years, I see things changing, um, and I see in some areas things mm-hmm. are getting better. I can't really speak before I started to really do the community work because I wasn't as focused. But I can tell you that within the programming that we do, and within the things that I see. Absolutely. When you work together and you really care and you love and show commitment and consistency, I do see that it works. I want to circle back to the basketball league and just, you know, changing, changing mindsets and the process behind using basketball or just using sports while incorporating that that mindset change for our youth. And you don't really know much about basketball. I don't know. I didn't know really anything about basketball. Um, actually, in one of our games, um, I the, the guy had uh, taken the ball from the other guy, one guy on another team. And I said, wasn't that an interception? And, and, the, and, the, and the coaches looked at me like, Mia, that's football. So, no, I, I don't know a lot about it. But I do know that when you give a youth something they want, you are going to be more successful with giving them what they need if you couple those things together. So our intention is not to stop at sports. We want to couple this with music. Um, I've I've talked to uh, many people. I've talked to many people. um, uh, I think it's called Buffalo String Works, um, Dawn Berry uh, with the Pappy Martin uh, Foundation. Uh, I've spoken to them about coupling music. Um, We've talked to um, Renato Graham uh, and Rafael Suarez about coupling it with media production. Um, We want to mix it with whatever the student or the youth is interested in. Mm -hmm. So we're starting with sports, but we're going to go into all different things. And if you combined trauma-informed care, restorative practice, love and compassion and support with whatever that youth wants, then... positive outlets. Yes, absolutely. You're going to get a better outcome. Um, And we obviously talked about um, some of the positives to come out of the league. Um, What are some of the the challenges um, with the league? It was your first year. So I guess there was (laughs) a a lot of trial and error there. Yes, it was. And a lot of people have told me because I've spoken about this a lot and they're telling me, Mia, you talk too much or you shouldn't say those things. You know, you only want to talk about the positive things. But I think it's important. I'm glad you asked me that because it's important for us to talk about everything in order for us to get better. So the main challenge was practice space and coaches. So we had 12 teams. We should have had 24 coaches to be real because mm-hmm. if one coach, coach is sick, you need an assistant coach. Absolutely. And if one is sick or not able to come, and consistency is key with youth. You don't want to start off and not be able to finish. Um, so not having enough coaches really hurt us. And, and, and I mean, we were successful. And I would say for it being our first time, it definitely was successful. But if we would have had 
coaches, the amount of coaches we needed from beginning to end, the success rate would have been even more. So having more coaches. So if there's any coaches out there, yeah. please contact us, <laughs> joinmvp.org, yes. www.joinmvp.org, or you can call us at 585-JOIN-MVP. Um, and space, believe it or not, we could not find enough space for the youth to practice. They would call us consistently because they wanted to practice every day, although, you know, that's not realistic, but... Mm -hmm. We just wanted them to be able to practice at least three times a week. And it was very difficult to find space for all the teams. And we have so many community centers. There's churches. There's all type of things. But it was difficult. Some people wanted to charge us too much money. Some people didn't have the um, coverage. Like they didn't have someone to work there, to be there uh, for the space. So that was a challenge. So if you have a basketball court and you're willing to offer space or you know someone who's in charge of community space um, then please uh, help us there's been a lot of talk about the instances of violence in and after school um, I know you do work with um, Erie County Restorative Justice Coalition yes um, a friend of the show Jessica Barrow Walker yes. all the things she's she's a part of um, what do we do about this this issue? It's a it's a problem. I don't want to say it's it's, a, it's a, an issue. It is a problem right absolutely, now. Absolutely, absolutely. And um, and I'm glad you mentioned those two wonderful ladies. I just would like to say that they have been um, an integral part of helping MVP become the success that we are, and we work very closely together with Dina Thompson and Jessica Bauer-Walker. Um, but what we do is continue to do what we are doing, and we need to work together, and people need to not be afraid to help. Mm -hmm. You know, I hear a lot, oh, what you're doing is great, and, you know, if I had time, I would do this, and if I could, I would. Well, we all can if we, you know, set certain priorities and you don't have to be what we call boots on the ground. You can help for two hours a month. You can help from your home. Someone connecting someone that helps, you know, someone making phone calls, someone posting on social media. It's not all the same, you know, so us working together is what's going to help programming. Our youth need more programming they need something to do most of the time they're doing these things because they don't have anything else to do um, so having safe space for our youth is huge create creating space for the parents and providing more support and resources for the parents anywhere you go where there is poverty 90% of the time, you're going to have crime. Mm -hmm. I don't care what color you are, what race you are, where you are. If there is poverty, people are going to do what they need to do to survive. Unfortunately, sometimes that means doing illegal things. So if we can provide more resources, more support, and more programming, I personally believe that that would go a long way. Your background, 25 years experience in, in sales and management. Um, how does that skill set you acquired in those fields apply to your work with MVP, you know, a, a nonprofit whose aims don't necessarily line up with a traditional for-profit business. 
Well, I will say, first of all, my experience in sales and, and marketing helps uh, with going after funders. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. that definitely helps because, you know, when you're in sales, it helps with dealing with people in general. I, I've been dealing with people all of my professional life. So would you consider yourself a, a people person? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Well, now were you, do you think you were born like that or did you have to kind of work at it? I think I was born that way. I've always, you know, my, my parents and my older uh, aunts and uncles, they all told me that I talked too much. And <laughs> I, <laughs> they all told me that I, you know, was always in everyone's business and I was always doing too much. So, yeah, I, I think I've always been a people person. <laughs> now, now, when you when you when you're around family now and you're like, well, look at me now, how you, how you like me now? Is that what you do? <laughs> Well, now I'm always asking family, uh, could you come help? Uh, we need help. They're like kind of tired of hearing about MVP probably. but You've got some things in the mix. Can you talk about your 10-step empowerment initiative for young Absolutely. women that you're working on? It's going to start off targeting young women. However, it will be good for everyone. Um, so it's called 10 Steps to Independence. And it's something that um, I personally have been working on for a very long time. I would say uh, I started with this thought process maybe 10 years ago. Wow. However, it takes a lot to put something like this together because uh, 10 Steps to Independence is basically a program that we would like to put out to help young people. And like I said, eventually it can help anyone. But it will help to build a foundation so that they are able to go off to college or they're able to go off to training or just go off to their life. But what it is, is 10 different skills, I would say that or or the steps each are different. So the first step is loving yourself and knowing yourself. OK, because in our community, a lot of times we're taught you don't look right. You don't talk right. You don't act right. Mm -hmm. So if you're constantly told you're not enough, you're not correct, then it's difficult to love yourself. And if you don't love yourself, then how can you want more for yourself? And if you don't love yourself, how can you love someone else? So I think that that was like really the most important thing, because in our work with youth, we can see that they, they really don't love themselves, because if you love yourself, you won't disrespect yourself the way that we see that our young people are doing. So the second step is health and wellness. Um, so we want to teach our youth the basics in health and wellness, the ba basics in financial, uh, fi we call it financial health, but financial literacy, mm -hmm. basically. You know, we, we're not typically in the inner city. We, we haven't been brought up to learn about, you know, credit and interest rates and, you know, things that have to do with money and, and you know, really respecting your money and taking care of your money. Um, housekeeping, you know, it, it might sound weird, but, you know, when my daughter went off to college, she always complained about how her roommates didn't, you know, some of her roommates, you know, they didn't know how to clean up. And it's important to we be won't able name to name names here. <laughs> it's not, it's important though, <laughs> mm -hmm. for you to be able to cook, to clean, to take care of yourself. So, um, learning how to fill out forms, you know, right. sometimes these little things that people take for granted, is important. You know, if, if a child does not know how to fill out a form, if they don't know that information, they're intimidated. So then they don't go apply for a job, you know? So a little thing leads into a big thing. So once they complete all of these steps, we feel that they will have a better foundation so that they are more self, uh, that they have more self-esteem and they're more confident 
And then they'll be able to go out and take care of themselves when they go out into the world. So it's 10 steps to independence. And the reason why it was so difficult is because I'm no expert in all these areas. <laughs> so we have to get experts uh -huh. in all of these areas to make sure that we have the right information and it's going to be a workshop in conjunction with a book so there will be a physical book that will have all the steps that you can read on your own but it will work in conjunction with a workshop so there'll be a workshop with each step so in in addition to um the this empowerment initiative what's next for mvp uh in the coming months and in the coming years we have a program called parent to parent that we do with uh, Buffalo Public Schools and Say Yes Buffalo, uh, and now the uh, United Way has gotten involved as well. So these parent-to-parent -parent sessions, uh, we use a book called When Parents Ask for Help that is by the Search Institute, and it talks about the 40 developmental assets, which 20 are internal, 20 are external. And if uh, our youth... Uh, have these 20 develop, I mean, 40 developmental assets, then they will have a better life. Um, we use the seven habits of highly effective people by Stephen Covey. Um, some people say Covey, uh, but uh, <laughs> we feel that if we go over these seven habits with our parents, that it will help them to be better parents. So between the 40 developmental assets and the seven habits, we want to give them, you know, more skills, more tools. We have a home cooked meal for them. Uh, and we meet and talk about experiences. We have parents from 16 on up to care, caregivers that could be 70. You know, it's mm -hmm. all different ages. So it's very interesting. Uh, we just recently started a Muslim edition of this parent to parent because we have a lot of Muslim um, or, or immigrants of different kind coming into the inner city now. And we want them to feel included. We want them to feel welcome and we want to eventually do it all together, but we're going to start off because we want them to feel comfortable. So we want to have halal food and we want to talk about some issues that maybe um, they're going through because their teenagers are going through some different things than even our teenagers are going through because we've worked with a lot of them. And can you imagine coming to another country and you have certain rules that you have to follow? You go to school and you're students they bully you because you're not like them mm -hmm. so you try to assimilate and then you go home and get in trouble because you're trying to assimilate wow. so they're in like a whole nother situation so we have a, a muslim edition of that uh we have a meeting wednesday uh at lafayette and thursday at east high school but i'm going to email you all the information so maybe you can put it on your website or facebook or something uh we have a, a bridging the gap initiative it's called we've had Four or five meetings so far. Um, we've met at Canisius. We've met at Villa Maria, um, Gloria J. Parks. We're, we're trying to meet at different centers. Our next one will be at the United Way. But basically, we're trying to bring different races and ethnic backgrounds, different religions, different professions, just bringing all folks together and trying to come up with a strategic plan on how we can work uh, more effectively regularly together everyone's working in silos mm -hmm. if we come together maybe on a quarterly basis and we have a big event and we share information we just think that it'll be more impactful so that's called bridging the gap and then in the spring we'll be doing the basketball all over again so those are some of the things that uh, we're working on and once again for our listeners if you're listening to us 
come come out come out and volunteer please, please come out and volunteer please go sweat to. sweat equity it's worth it as, a, as someone who volunteers in the basketball league you get you get more out of it than you think you will um this has been what's next i want to thank our guest most Valuable Parents Executive Director Mia Ayers-Goss for being with us. You're listening to WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR station.